Holy Week. Ten days that changed the course of history. I want to tell the story again in a way that you may not have heard it, and I want to tell it to regular people without trying to douse you in dogma or proselytize you or to get you to think like I do. But I realized one day that regular people may just be fascinated if they actually heard the story because the real story was for regular people. It was never meant to be anesthetized and put into a religion box. This story, the story of the last week of Jesus' life, it speaks. It has everything to do with what we humans are passionate about, justice and freedom and living in a way that's fully alive. One reason why I'm fascinated with this story is the old butterfly wing flap effect. Love it or hate it, because of this story, there are currently about 2.4 billion people on planet Earth that call themselves Christian, meaning that in some way, shape, or form, they've had their lives touched or changed by this story. So love it or hate it, this story is huge, and it spans the globe, and it all came from just 10 days. Now, you may well have some sort of knee-jerk reaction to Jesus that's tightly connected to a bad emotional experience you've had that makes you want to throw up in your mouth. It's highly likely, if you're a thinker, this story may seem unintelligent, ahistoric, impossible, fraught with conflicting information, maybe just irrelevant. You've probably connected it with modern Western Christianity, which brings to your mind all kinds of images. And amidst all of the beautiful ones, there are those other pictures that you can't ignore. Maybe it's a, a pastor who couldn't pass a junior high biology exam to save his life, all the way down to televangelists in golden chairs with too much hairspray and a 1-800 number flashing so you can get your prayer shawl for 99 bucks. It, it brings up images of anything from people convulsing on the floor and being smacked in the forehead, or somebody uttering out gibberish, or saying they saw Jesus on a piece of burnt toast, or maybe it's really bad knockoff bands trying too hard to impress you with their skinny jeans while they scream about a hipster Jesus. It, it brings up other images of creepy priests molesting children in the Crusades in the Westboro Baptist Church that always makes the news when they hold up their signs that say, God hates fags. Or maybe it makes you think of intolerance or shallow people or less expansive thinking or political lobbying or why you can't get waffle fries on Sundays or Supreme Court cases. Or it makes you think of the Saturday Night Live church lady, Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. Those awful debates where Ken Ham got destroyed by Bill Nye the science guy, and you're like, is this the best Christianity can do? It may simply make you think of neat people whose lives look way too much like the Cleaver family from the 1960s. It may bring to mind an old grouchy neighbor who puts God bless our troops and build that wall signs on his lawn. Or maybe it's your sweet great-grandmother who quotes the Bible in one breath and in the next tells you that global warming is a hoax and she knows it's going to be extra cold this winter because the farmer's almanac. It may make you think of pastors and cufflinks hopping out of their Rolls Royce and into a tax-free private jet. It may make you think of that professor who is otherwise really brilliant, but he just had this giant blind spot because of his faith. Or bad parenting. Or the strange fact that Jesus and the early Christians were poor and powerless or homeless and the ones that you know today are all at least wealthier than average and don't seem to care a whole lot about the poor. Or people that post their mission trip photos of them patting poor black kids on the head. Or the blind side where the white savior comes in with a fish emblem on their Mercedes trunklet to save the day because we all know poor and minority people can't fend for themselves. Or maybe it makes you think of Christian knockoffs like t-shirts and bumper stickers that take somebody else's creativity and change a letter and think it's cool because it's Christian now. Or your Uncle Doug who gets his Jesus story from Fox News and insists every Thanksgiving that Jesus would vote Republican. Or that friend who posts all the time these awkward religious come-to-Jesus quotes trying to evangelize their Facebook friends, and you're like, yeah, I'd prefer not to be that social outcast. 
It may make you think of people passing out tracks in parking lots or knocking at your door in suits on bicycles or somebody approaching you like a used car salesman and they're not following any contemporary social protocols in their approach that respect boundaries. It may make you think of Southern culture and the Confederate flag and Klansmen burning crosses or Hitler killing Jews or Mel Gibson making millions off a Jesus film and then getting put in rehab. It may make you think of football players who are thanking God for helping them win a football game while across the pond children are being gassed to death by lunatic governments. Or Ricky Bobby praying to the baby Jesus and you have that relative. It may make you think of people who have nothing better to do with their time than to debate over whether Walmart should tell them Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays while they buy their discounted TV on Black Friday, or whether the Ten Commandments can be displayed on a courthouse square when no one even knows what the Ten Commandments are, or whether we can pray in school when no one you know even actually prays anywhere, or the inconsistencies of people who say Jesus rose from the dead and for some reason celebrated by eating chocolate given them by a bunny, or just the person you know who slaps Jesus' name on everything, and you can't see how this Jesus tag has changed anything about them for the better. And you know atheists and agnostics and transgender people and people of all religions who are creative, amazing human beings doing compelling things in the world. Simply that the lives of the people you know who seem to know all about this Jesus aren't really compelling. The world is crawling with people who are bathing in Jesus dogma who haven't even taken time to read the Jesus story. But it's there. It's in the Bible. It's in the Gospels. So I I can't blame you if hearing about Jesus makes you want to go run and hide in a hole, but I want to invite you past all that because there's actually a story here that I think we need to hear. Before there were culture wars and factions and institutional churches and crusades, there was this story And it's a story that won't die. The fact that it isn't dead in the 21st century amidst all its misrepresentation, I think, is an indicator that there's something here worth telling. Now, the surviving narrative that we have of Jesus of Nazareth isn't a historical story. Now, the basic story did happen. Virtually no serious historical scholar doubts that Jesus existed and he was killed in Jerusalem, not even atheist scholars. And beyond that, we don't even really have great reason for most scholars to doubt that most of what's recorded in the four Gospels actually did happen. But none of that is the point. This is not a historical story because the Gospels weren't historical documents. The Gospels that tell us this story were never intended to be news articles or history books. This is one of those great ancient stories that survive through history and grow and continue to be told. They rise and they transform to become something bigger. They become legendary and mythic because of the truth that is in them. Now, the word mythic is often misunderstood as meaning fake or untrue, maybe like a child's fable. In ancient literature, though, mythic stories weren't less than true. In fact, it was one that was more than true. In fact, it's so true that it transcends its historical location in space-time that it's born out of because it isn't just true for one person and it can't stay in its locale anymore. It's a story that's true for all of us. That's what makes an epic movie epic. It's its ability to tie together these archetypal themes that undergird the human experience. It's its ability to provide meaning to suffering and hardship. Essentially, it's ability to provide resolution to the human experience itself. This is an epic, mythic story. 
many people have defended the historicity of it so much as to put all these conditions on it. Like if you don't believe in miracles, you're out of here. Or if you don't believe in this part, you're out of here. If you don't believe every single word is inerrant and without contradiction, then you're out of here. And unfortunately have turned away a lot of great people from having a chance to hear it. But it's so much bigger than just a historical story. Now, the second thing about this story is the story of Jesus of Nazareth isn't primarily a spiritual story by our definition of spiritual. It was a political story. Now, of course, it was spiritual because in the ancient world, everything was spiritual by its nature. And of course, it was religious because all government in the ancient world was religious in its structure and by its nature. But it was a far cry from the church and state battles that we know now. And so many people have, in essence, relegated this story to a religion box that's only relevant for certain people in a certain club. But this was a nationwide political story about power in the real world with real national governments. It's about laws and wealth and policies and criminal justice and taxes and the separation of the rich and poor and how we affect change. Not in church, in our world, in society. This is intended to be a mainstream story for all of us. It's about how to do politics and exercise power in a completely backwards way. Because like, how's politics working for us these days? See, I think we need to hear this Jesus story now more than ever because there's so much wisdom and light here about how to build a completely different type of nation from the ground up. Not a Republican nation, not a Democratic nation, not a third party nation, not even a democracy or a country with borders, but a kingdom, an upside down, backwards sort of kingdom. It's what Jesus always talked about. Now, you may think Jesus came to save souls, but Jesus never talked about saving souls. A lot of people think Jesus came to give us a personal relationship with God, but he never mentioned that phrase. Some people think Jesus came to talk about truth and to tell us the truth, and he liked truth, but that wasn't his favorite subject. You may think he came to talk about love, but that even wasn't his favorite subject by word count. His favorite subject that he mentioned 119 times in the four short gospels was this nation, this kingdom that he wanted to talk about. So the gospels go something like this. Before he was born, an angel told Mary that he would give Jesus the throne of his father David and his kingdom would never end. As soon as he was born, the the Magi came to worship the one who was born king of the Jews. And when he was coming of age, John the Baptist preached, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. And that was Jesus' message. Repent for this nation of God is here. And as he taught people, he did miracles and the things that you know him for. He kept telling about the good news of this backwards nation or kingdom. In fact, that's the word gospel. At first it was one long phrase, gospel of the kingdom, and then it just got shortened to gospel. And so he preaches sermons and he tells parables about the kingdom, the kingdom, and the kingdom. The kingdom is like this, the the kingdom of God is like this, or it's like this, and then they kill him. And the entire ordeal surrounds the question as to whether he was the king of the Jews. The charges were that he claimed to be a king. He was an insurrectionist. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And they mocked him as a king. They put a sign over his head that said, in three languages, king of the Jews. And after he rose, he told his followers to go preach the good news of this nation, this kingdom. And the last question they asked him before he ascended into heaven in the story of Acts was, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom? 
So from beginning to end, the story of Jesus is a mythic, larger-than-life, truer-than-true story about a kingdom and a different kind of king. So when I hear someone in the Bible Belt saying that Jesus wants to save my soul or have me say a sinner's prayer or give me a personal relationship with God or a mansion in the clouds or call a 1-800 number or tithe, that's the moment I suspect I'm dealing with someone who hasn't read the story. But it's right there. It's in the Gospels. It's 10 days. Now, it could have been nine. We don't know. I rounded. You know Jesus because of 10 days. The popular notion was that he was this boring, nice, happy white guy, white robe, long hair, beard, blue beauty pageant sash, walked around for a long time being nice, inviting people to church, healing people, hugging kids, patting sheep on the head. And one day, some mean bullies started to be unkind to him and started to threaten him and he refused to not be nice back because he's Jesus so it got worse until they nailed him on a cross and he let him do it because if there's one thing he's not going to do is to be mean back because he's Jesus so he probably grimaced and wanted to cuss but he bit his tongue and he died and he rose again and he floated around telling people saying see look it pays to be nice those bullies couldn't hurt me that's the image of Jesus that's so often projected but it's time to take back the story and to reimagine that. It was just 10 days. Now, it was one of those clutch moments in history where the timing was right and a moment had to be seized. Something was about to go down. There was this escalating tension in the Near East and modern-day Israel. It was hitting a political and social climax. I mean, things were tense. You knew something was about to go down in Israel. It was that moment in the game where you don't know who's going to win, but the next minute is going to tell you. And this guy, Yeshua Natsada, Jesus of Nazareth, walked into a mess when everyone else around him hid. It was like the Rosa Parks moment on the bus where everybody else has been compliant to this oppressive system and finally someone says no more. Like, Do you honestly even know anything else about Rosa Parks? I mean, this was her moment. Heroes and legends are made in this moment when the spotlight is on them and there's this unresolved injustice and tension and they find themselves the perfect place in the perfect time and they step up to the plate and they say yes. It, it was this very tiny slice of history When this guy knew that he was made for such a time as this, and he said yes to the moment, even at the expense of his life. Now, whether you think Jesus physically rose from the dead or not isn't actually the most impressive thing about Jesus. The most impressive thing about Jesus was that he died like he did. Jesus strapped on his sandals and walked uphill toward this political nightmare that was Jerusalem to destroy this system of oppression and injustice. It was oppression and injustice of the worst kind. It was the kind with God's name stamped on it, where the oppressors themselves had convinced everyone that this system was somehow the will and the wish of the divine gods above. This is like the ultimate manipulative scare tactic, because if you mess with it, the gods are going to get you. It's the kind of scare tactic that uses one of these most potent methods, where you trap people by their own goodness and desire to be a good human into acquiescing and complying with your oppression. See, religious oppression? It's about the worst of all. And if you're wondering, like, hasn't Christianity done that? Yep. Which is why the Jesus story continues to need to be told. Jesus was this one teacher with his ragtag group of followers who amassed this caravan of people and they walked into one of the most politically volatile situations that may be the perfect time in history and they stuck a dagger into the heart of a religious and political institution that needed to die. They went into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, which was their country's epicenter of religious political establishment. But they didn't physically do it. They destroyed it 
by exposing it to the light. They did it with the spirit of that old Martin Luther King quote, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. See, in in a world of political polarization and social media rants and social bubbles, I predict that this way of politics born from sacrificial nonviolent love for the enemy is the only way forward. That's why this story moves me and it inspires me. And if there's anything that has to do with transforming a person, it's inspiration. It's not knowledge. It's not acquisition. It's not consumption. It's not skill or talent. It's not articulation. It's inspiration. It's that moment whenever you remember your identity and you remember why you're human and you get out of bed in the morning and you get to be a part of sacrificing yourself to forever impact the landscape of planet Earth because you said yes when your name was called. This is the Jesus story that won't die despite all the ways that it's been maimed, attacked, misrepresented, and misconstrued and mistold. I want to invite us all, church people and regular people alike, into this legendary story of Jesus of Nazareth because in this message is something we all desperately need to be a people bound by love. Hey, thanks for tuning in. This is the story of Holy Week.